You're with Julian on the Brown Note, and I'm doing my awards season. And last week was my top 25 albums of the year. Next week's uh, top tracks of the year won't be on YouTube or podcasts or anything. It'll only exist on live on the radio and also on Mixcloud, which will because it's just all music. It's just no point in editing it. But this week's will because most of it's going to be talking about my favourite and least favourite films of the year. This is how it's going to work. Normally, I do my top films of the year and halfway through I'll break off and do my worst films of the year which I enjoy more always do um but this year it's been for albums as well lots of eights not many nines it's been the most insipid year for films in the show's history um perhaps understandable lots being held back but also a lot of fails for me um the albums weren't great but kind of okay but the films are worse um, there's just nothing inspiring going on here. And there were some big films this year that let me down. So this is how it's going to work. I'm going to do the first four films. I'm not doing even numbers. It's my top 14 best and my bottom 10 worst. But once I get to the top 10, it will be just be head-to-head, play a song, head-to-head, so the 10th best, 10th worst, and so on. Um, and that's going to be the way all the way through. Also, another thing is every year we have this problem which is um, us not being America here. A lot of the best films of the year come out in January for the awards season. And they're really part of last year's conversation, but they're always the best films of the year. So it's always, do I include those you know, five films that came out in January to be nominated for the Oscars, even though they were kind of last year's and they were shown at you know festivals but not given a wide release? So that would be doubly problematic this year as if I included pretty much any of those films, it would wipe the floor with what came out after January. So I have got one big one in there, but that's because it only was released widely in the cinema for a brief period of time from the 25th of December, and it was only released internationally on Netflix on the 31st of January, so it really is a film from this year. Something like Parasite I'm not including. Parasite did the majority of its box office this year, especially around the Oscars, and but it was being released in festivals from June last year, so it's not, it doesn't count. But one has snuck through the net. So without further ado, I'm going to start at number 14 with Bacarau from a Brazilian director called Kleber Mendonca Fio, and he's stepping up to be one of the most internationally revered directors he's done quite a few films but only a couple of major ones and they've both won a lot of awards this one the special jury prize at can it's a version of the most dangerous games slash hunger games uh, where rich people are hunting poor people out in the north of brazil in the interior of brazil in the red earth and it also throws in uh, large corporations and their mistreatment of brazilian villages in rural settings to get their you know, their environmental destruction to get their the goods from the land and so on. All very timely themes, particularly in right-wing Brazil at the moment, where ecological calamities are happening because they're, you know, raping and pillaging the land to benefit large corporations under the guidance of their wonderful prime minister or president. Um, it's got a lot of acclaim, but it was overrated. It wasn't... It was pretty wild at times. The soundtrack was excellent and... Um, it jumped around a lot, but it was also very flat. The The cast wasn't very good. A few people were reasonably good, but that was about it. Uh, everyone else was pretty amateur hour. Um, I thought it took a long time to get where it was going. I, I By the time it got into the Hunger Games element, I thought that it would have been better off staying a drama about this town being you know, turned over to large corporations and politicians letting them down. I would have actually been happier... And when it does, it doesn't kick off enough. We've seen The Most Dangerous Game, the story about humans hunting other humans, portrayed in many films and books throughout. I mean, The Hunger Games is the most prominent of this century, but The Hunt came out either this year or last year. That had more to say about The Most Dangerous Game than this did. This didn't really add anything to it. It was rich people hunting poor people with no embellishment and no backstory and nothing to it. So I didn't think it brought enough to the table. I thought when the villagers fought back in a denouement, I was expecting something like, you know, one of the old Django movies. It was just a bit too tepid across the board. 
uh, not enough happened and it didn't happen wildly enough for me it was all a bit of a letdown but it was still great fun beautifully vividly colorful and dynamically directed and he's a name to look out for at number 13 love and monsters i hate young adult films more than anything in cinema including rom-coms but i hate romantic young adult films so i didn't sit down to watch love and monsters by michael matthews uh, with any hope at all of not hating it but i loved it it was uh curiously it wasn't um a, a sour-faced twilight maze runner poe face seriousness it was um and it wasn't bombastic it didn't knock you over the head it was actually the perfect middle ground uh the lead character by dylan o'brien was a whiny runt he was wonderful he was really good i don't know why how he managed to pull that off but he grew throughout the film so that you by the end you actually respected him and the fact that jessica henwick who i picked out earlier in the year is a massive star of the future she's beautiful she's got the talent she's got she's electric on screen she was great in underwater across from tepid boring christian stewart uh she like when you first see her no way is Dylan o'brien up to her at all but by the end he's gone through these courageous growing moments and i actually really warmed him great special effects doesn't overdo the monsters uses them at perfect moments and it's also soulful and moving at number 13 that was love and monsters at number 12 the color out of space which is the latest um adaption of the hp lovecraft novel good to see him getting a lot of attention lately uh, this one by richard stanley who hadn't worked for 30 years after being kicked off the island of dr moreau uh, one of the most famous troubled projects in movie history uh, i think they've made entire documentaries about it he hadn't worked again but he came back with this very sure-footed entry into the modern horror uh, it wasn't quite as crazy as i hoped it would be especially with nicholas cage in the lead i said we're in the age of cage he's making the comeback i seriously think he's one of my favorite actors but compared to something as mind-blowingly brilliant as mandy uh, a lot of this was ordinary until we got to the point um, but it was still very good and it was still uh, well shot uh, dramatic I thought Cage might have overdone it a little bit and I thought it could have got zanier sometimes but by the last third it got really colorful and uh, very upsetting visuals and disturbing uh, which is what I signed up for so I was happy it was still a really good film just not quite as nothing as crazy as Mandy and the final in this burst my number 11 film of the year aaron sorkin's trial of the chicago seven uh it will probably get some notice around oscars time as an aaron sorkin project i thought it was better than whatever the film that he made last time was uh molly's game which was very underrated but he a good writer might be a good writer but that doesn't mean they're a good writer of a screenplay he writes brilliant scripts, but that screenplay on that was far too wayward. Here, he's trimmed it down, and it works much better. It was a great film. I felt like it just should have stepped into being a bit more edgy, whereas the last third felt a bit more Spielberg and Ron Howard than the rest of the film had, and it felt like it was reaching for those Oscar-worthy emotional notes. Still a great film, brilliant script, hugely interesting subject about the trial of the Chicago 7, and very timely and i reckon an oscar nomination uh, eddie redmayne was really good and so was it's amazing cast joseph gordon levitt michael keaton frank langella um eddie redmayne was great mark rylance was great but i reckon an oscar nomination for the star sasha baron cohen i mean you go from one week it was borat came out and then i think a week later this came out he is superb in this film so that's my number 11 film of the year and we'll go head to head after this with my top 10 best and worst films of the year this you're with julian on the brownout counting down my best and worst films of the year from now on it's going to be my 10th worst my 10th best all the way through to number one going head to head and the way the worst films works i don't choose 10 films that i gave one out of 10 to um have i got yeah so i haven't got hard kill on which i gave a zero out of 10 to because it was a non-entity it wasn't even a film that registered anywhere so i've got a lot of controversial choices in my worst films 
Um, usually they'll be fairly big films, fairly important films. Uh, a lot of the time they'll be films that have got incredibly good reviews and I've just disagreed. Or they've been a massive letdown dependent on the director or a number of other factors. <clears throat> Without further ado, my 10th worst and my 10th best film both have 51% on, on Metacritic and a similar score on Rotten Tomatoes. That's insanity. My 10th worst film of 2020 is by Henry Juice and Ariel Shulman, who I think have the mighty track record of uh, Paranormal Activity 3. Who thought that they would be good as the people to helm an $80 million action film on Netflix? I don't know, and they weren't. Um, Project Power, one of a few Netflix films which have gone down the route of trying to, um, I think the first one was Blood shot with van diesel which i didn't dislike and the other one was uh, michael bay film uh six underground which i didn't dislike too much um and they keep doing these films um project power to me stepped over the line between being a guilty pleasure and just being aggravatingly bad uh it tried too hard to be trendy they made the um dominic fishback was really good she was one of the only people that was really good in it but they kept making like the teenage african-american girl rap more like three times in the film which was just cringe inducing attempts to sort of garner some kind of cultural element to the movie the music choices were poor uh the theme of the uh, people taking pills and getting super powers from them was really underdeveloped as was the social context of new orleans and using impoverished black communities to trial drugs from major pharmaceutical companies None of it really worked. Jamie Foxx was really good. Joseph Gordon-Levitt hasn't really done it for me much in films. Um, I found it all a bit of a damp squib. It it kind of um, built itself up, but didn't have anywhere to go. It was a bit reductive. Uh, the denouement wasn't that interesting, and they just missed out on a lot of things they could have done. It was just it was really horribly edited. It was edited like a music video. So there was lots of swooping camera shots all the time, and it just got on my nerves. It was grating. My 10th worst film of the year, Project Power. My 10th best film of the year is definitely my most surprise. I think that was the doorbell. The most surprising film of the year. I have rubbished Guy Ritchie more than any other director, and he's up there with M. Night Shyamalan as the director that gets the most jobs that you just don't understand why. Um, I thought Lockstock and Snatch were extremely amiable, but not very good. Since then, he has made an unending raft of terrible films, really generic, really uh, folding back on his past films, or massively bad. My worst film of the year a few years ago was the King Arthur film, which is the worst film he's ever made. So approaching another Lockstock film like The Gentleman, my 10th best film of the year, I hoped for nothing, and I got the my favourite ever Guy Ritchie film. It's the best written Guy Ritchie film. It's the most put together um, as, a, as an actual piece of art um, instead of just, you know, random scene, random scene, just link them all together, put some cool dialogue in, put some funky music over the top, which has pretty much been his raison d'etre his whole career. Um, I thought it was really well defined. It had some great characters. Matthew McConaughey is a, is a reliable star. He was a non-entity in this film. Um, Charles Hunman, who, Hunnam, who I've always slagged off as being terrible and the worst thing in films, I said was excellent in The Lost City of Zed, the first film I'd seen him good in. He was brilliant here, and so was Colin Farrell, and star of the show was Hugh Grant, who was magnificent as a, a devious press guy. I thought the oven some mess towards the end. Most of it happened really, really well. It was well-structured. Uh, it had long-form scenes. Not all the dialogue was reliant on swearing and cockney mannerisms. Um, I thought it was clever, and I thought it was uh, the best, most consistently well-written Guy Ritchie film. How he bounced back from King Arthur to this, I don't know, but that was my 10th best film of the year. Now, my ninth worst film of the year. Yeah, so one of the few this low rent in list, uh, it's The Owners by uh, director, debut director Julius Berg. Uh, and it's just a home invasion film, um, you know, the similar thing where you've got a couple that are tormented by people breaking into their home over the course of a movie. 
Here, um, it's just so aggressively, gratingly annoying. Everyone's actions are stupid. The guys in it are terrible actors. Um, I think Macy Williams is being held up as some, you know, next big teen star, even though she's probably 28. Um, she's all right in it, but the guys are so bad that you really are happy when they die because they're so grating on screen. Um, it's very messy and it's extremely uneven. And it has a flip side where the couple are actually, you know, part of some cult and it's really them actually end up torturing the home invaders but it's just not done well enough um it doesn't use that element enough and it throws in a twist at the end which will have you grasping it's so bad so it was an aggressively bad film to sit through uh, my ninth best was the opposite it was sheer class and had it not come out had it not been bought out by a streaming service we would now be looking at an Oscar nomination for Hugh Jackman. His best performance, possibly, maybe it was Logan, maybe it's this film, but he's brilliant in this film as a gay teacher. Well, not a teacher, but someone that looks after a school, after their finances, and it was the biggest school fraud in American history based on true story, where he misappropriated millions over the years alongside an equally awards-worthy Alison Janney. They both enriched themselves at the public's expense, but also kind of justified it all by the fact that the school had gone into the top five best schools in America um, for whatever criteria they were judging it on. And it, it posed some uncomfortable sort of questions and also a lot of self-delusion from the leads. And it was a wonderful, classy, witty, warm, engaging film where it was impossible to hate the villains at all. Steve Carroll was excellent in it. It was an all-round wonderful watch. I think pretty much anyone would like it. And it sort of posed the question about people that live their whole lives pretending to be other people, which is a, a really good footing for a story in a film, I feel. So that was my ninth best film of the year, Bad Education. And you're with Julian counting down my best and worst films of the decade, going head to head, one bad, one good. Unless I do it all too quickly, in which case I might separate them. Uh, my eighth worst film of the year is, I, I mentioned they're not, all terrible films are just films that have let me down a lot in a, in a lot of ways and I had such high expectations for the devil all the time my eighth worst film of the year it's I, I'm a sucker for the Appalachian Ozark sort of theme in movies this had all the class in the world all the authenticity in the locations and the lives of the people it was redolent of that world it was just such a, a, a ridiculously overlong, overwrought screenplay. Uh, it was very, very boring. It was near two and a half hours, and it it just posited scene after scene, and it moved on a few years, and then another few scenes, and then it moved on a few years. But there was no thread tying anything together. Um, most of the actors in it were pretty decent. I thought that. Um, the standouts were obviously Tom Holland and Robert Pattinson. Pattinson was excellent as a scary preacher. And Tom Holland, I've slagged off a lot. I don't really like him as an actor, but he was perfectly good here. But they don't appear until the last third of the film. You're like an hour and 45 minutes in before you get to what you would call a major story arc. Um, which occupies the rest of the film. And even when it does do that, even though that was the best part of the film by Miles... Lots of incredulous things happen. People are in places where they haven't been for years and just so happen to bump into someone else. It just um, it didn't make a lot of sense. And I thought that all of the story elements seemed like little vignettes that didn't thread together. I think it was from, yeah, it's from a book by uh, Donald Ray Pollock, which got a lot of acclaim. It must have got lost in translation. Because um, I didn't feel any connection with, you know, the early half of the film and the latter half of the film. And if it was trying to say things about, you know, the circular nature of things and the way that problems are passed from one generation to another, I just felt these people were completely disconnected from the previous generations. It was interminably long, uh, very dour, very well shot and, and reasonably well performed by just about everyone. I thought Jason Clark as a serial killer was a bit off and I, t I tell you what that whole storyline of the serial killer really sunk it for me because it was so out of step 
with their lives in this, you know, in the hollers, in these poverty-stricken regions. And then they throw this massive story killer, a serial killer element into the story, which destabilised everything. It just made no sense. So that was my eighth worst film of the year. My eighth best film of the year is by a director I've got a lot of time for called Rick Roman War. He's done a couple of brilliant prison dramas, uh, Shot Caller and The Felon, uh, which I've really liked. Um, and there's another film that he did as well, which I forgot when I was mentioning it last time, and I've forgotten it again. But he's got a great track record for me. He also did um, The Snitch, starring The Rock, which uh, he, he's done like B-movies that are elevated via class. They're always well shot. They've always got decent people in them. Um, and I thought he's done really well with his films so far. Greenland is the best end-of-the-world meteor film since Deep Impact. Uh, inexplicably, it wasn't released in the cinema in America, despite the fact that it did about $40 million in the box office overseas, which more than made back its budget. So why they didn't give this most 2020 film a cinema release in America, I don't know. Particularly as it was really well and cinematically put together. It was dynamic. Um, it was it, it, its strongest parts were in the first sort of half hour where people were sort of turning on their neighbours um, and showing how fractured society can get in a few hours once they learn this meteor is coming to destroy the earth, who's getting saved, who isn't getting saved. Um, and the lead pair were winning for me. Gerard Butler's fair. He's, he's kind of becoming a king of B-movies a bit. Sometimes he's been really bad in really bad films. Um, I, he's done a couple of B-movies that have got trash where they're quite grimy. And I have actually really liked him, but I thought this was probably his best role. Um, and Marina Baccarin from Brazil, I just adore. She's so gorgeous. She's been in a lot of stuff over the years, and she's really good and really strong as a wife. Um, I thought the progression of the screenplay was really well handled. And I like the fact that it didn't offer, you know, a spaceship going out to rescue us all. It was actually the world's finishing and only a few people will survive. What will that impact on society? How will people behave? And it shows the uh, degradation and animalistic behaviour of people, which in a year of the plague uh, was uh, really quite a, a, a timely theme. The special effects were sparing yet really good when they were used. It was quite scary. And overall, I found it a very enjoyable and very cinematic experience. So Greenland was my eighth best film of the year. And what are we up? Uh, we're up to my seventh worst and best films. At number seven, another of those Netflix big budget action films. Um, and even the best ones were only sort of okay. But um, I think the worst of the bunch for me was actually the one that got the best reviews online. And that was The Old Guard. I don't know who Gina Price Brycewood is, but um, this film had so much potential. It's obviously a franchise starter. And it gave us um, two absolutely fantastic guys. Uh, Mattis Schoenartz, who has been brilliant in lots of film. He was in The Drop with Tom Hardy as the evil ex-boyfriend. He was magnificently scary. And possibly the queen of action movies, uh, Charlize Theron. Now, these two could have helmed this movie and it would have probably been really good. I like the whole backstory about um, people being born not knowing they're invincible and they don't know why and they just travel through history as these sort of mercenaries or good mercenaries. But instead, they cut those two into background characters and instead put Kiki Lane. Uh, this is another Netflix film like Project Power that tries so hard to go for cool cultural acceptance. So I'm guessing because she was an African-American woman, they wanted to put her front and young. And when they, even when they went to Iraq, the unit had to be multiracial, all-female. It was so cringe-inducingly try-hard. The two guys that were the, like the lead guys in it, gay guys, one's a Muslim, one's a Christian... They tried all along the film just to shoehorn moments in, like to a Muslim and a Christian guy kissing. And it was just like, really? It wasn't done with any sort of subtlety. It just knocked you over the head. Kiki Lane was terrible as the lead. Um, I found this aggressively bad. I thought the soundtrack was the worst of the year. It was continual Euro trash or Euro alt pop. Um, just it's hammering you every few seconds. 
Um, I found the writing terrible. The villain played by uh, Harry Melling was the worst villain in modern history. Worse than Jesse Eisenberg in Batman vs. Superman. Cringe-inducing. And after this operatic sort of setup to this other world, it all ended in a very sort of tepid, let's assault, uh, you know, a complex where they're doing experiments on people, which had already happened in um, Six Underground. They did similar, where, you know, there's these special power people that end up attacking the base where the mad scientists doing experiments on them. Um, that was the same. Bloodshot, exactly the same story. And this did the same thing, and I just thought it wasted a potentially great premise and two really good stars, and instead tried to be super trendy, super social media savvy, and you know get people talking about the fact we've got gay men or multiracial casting. But it was all so obvious and over the top. And it was in the end, it was a boring film. It didn't have a very good denouement. It's a denouement I've seen a million times, and it was helmed by the worst villain in modern movie history. So that was my seventh worst. My seventh best film is the most important documentary of the year, The Social Dilemma by Jeff Orlowski, looking at the impact of social media as an unprecedented event in world history and one that has already seen in America the most depressed, anxiety-induced and prone to suicide younger generation in American history. And it shows a terrifying format of what is happening and why and the fact that none of the people who form facebook or twitter or any of the social media had any idea that it was going to take off like it had or what the impact would be and the fact that it has reshaped society so much and it does touch on things like the impact on politics and social discourse but also on things like now teenagers grow up and their peer group isn't these 30 kids in their class, it's thousands of people online judging them. And instead of you being in your safe haven at home, these, bully, these people can bully you all the way into your bed. And the dramatic effect that this is happening on people's confidence, we've seen terrible things like a, a, a record low number of American kids are taking their driving test because they're so scared of everything. They're scared of failure. They're dating less. They can't handle all of the rejection. And you may say that this is down to, you know, molly coddling and everything like that. But they're bombarded all the time on social media by expectation, which has never happened to any other generation. And it's having a terrible impact on the world. And we don't know what we're doing with it. And we don't know how to mollify the negative effects of social media. It's a brilliant documentary and a terrifying documentary. And it's particularly about the effects of social media on youth and how detrimental that's been and unprecedented and how quick. Um, so that's my seventh best film of the year. And continuing the countdown at number six in my worst films of the year. And it's a debut by Australian director Seth Lani, originally from South Africa, called 2067. It's um, a dystopian end of the world film. I said, wouldn't it be a, a revolutionary cinematic concept to make a movie set in the future where everything's nice? where the world hasn't been destroyed it's actually got much better um it's another one of these films where the everyone's struggling to live in this dystopian post-apocalyptic world the opening's really good the opening minute uh which shows that um due to mankind uh, it's basically stopped oxygen being produced on earth and e every living thing starts dying and we're at a point where virtually no one's left alive no plants uh, no animals and humans exist on this very tainted oxygen produced by a multinational. Uh, and they decide, um, they build a time machine, and they find out 400 years in the future that the world's got better. So they want to send someone to the future to find out how they did it and bring them back. Now, it's not the most original concept to have this kind of thing, but this is really badly done. I've mentioned many times about how indie sci-fi and horror movies over the last decade have just become the pinnacle of cinematic achievement from the a24 films with lots of horrors like the witch and hereditary and and so many just amazing films that are just on the cusp of cinematic achievement for me and then you've got 
you know, Australia's just done so many brilliant low-budget sci-fi films like... Um, I can't think of any. I Am Mother, um, Predestination, um, The Rover, and what was the other one that was really Power Up? Was it Power Up? I think Power Up. Um, but they've just, every few years, there's another brilliant low-budget sci-fi. And against all of those films that are so well-made... This was a runt, an absolute runt. The acting was off the charts bad. And Cody Smith-McPhee is someone that I haven't rated at all in, in films so far. He does the worst crying man baby in movie history. He's constantly in floods of tears. No one knows why. Um, they cry all the way through this film. It's just so overwrought. Every conversation is on the verge of tears or actually full-blown tears. Uh, he's terrible. Ryan Quentin is useless as the manly guy. Deborah Mailman, uh, she's shocking and very miscast. The cast throughout are just awful. Um, it's very torturous to get through due to the fact that it's so overwrought and people are always on the verge of tears. Um, it's so uneven. Um, everything about the filmmaking process here, apart from the excellent soundtrack and some of the cinematography, is atrocious level and it's very cringe inducing and embarrassing to sit through so that's my sixth worst film of the year 2067 my sixth best is a film i reviewed last week which is the latest by david fincher uh which is mank which is the uh Her which is herman mankowitz writing the movie citizen kane um, and his involvement with the making of Citizen Kane and Orson Welles, but mainly from the perspective of a never better for me, um, Gary Oldman in the lead, who's definitely getting an Oscar nom. This will get so many Oscar nominations because it's about Hollywood, and also the production values are really high, like the cinematography and the um, the music and the um, direction and the, and the acting. I think Amanda Seyfried has never been better. She will get a nomination as well. Um, I didn't have too many faults with it. I said it was a soulless film, uh, and it is. But it's so interesting politically. He uh, he spends the film ruminating on his life throughout the 1930s where he became friends with uh, the guy that Citizen Kane was uh, based on. And who was that? I'm just trying to look down. William Randolph Hearst. And it focuses on his friendship with him and the Amanda Seyfried character and how he basically did the dirty on them by writing citizen kane i found it really interesting you might find it really pretentious and annoying but um and it is soulless and it is clever people and clever dialogue all the way through um but i found the political elements about um upton sinclair and his socialism and the way that the right-wing media and hollywood studios got behind that to bolderize him and knock him out of the way um i found really quite timely uh, quite relevant to the modern era the usage of fake actors in you know promo reels that pretended to be poor people that hated upton sinclair and all of that i found really enriched um the background story a lot um i found that his um, relationship with amanda seyfried who he ended up doing the dirty on was really interesting and the final scenes with him and william randolph hearst are magnificent and they both give each other lessons on who each other is. Um, I found it a really interesting film. It's beautifully made. I did say that the black and white cinematography is too clean for me. I wish it looked a bit more scuzzed up and dirty and old. It's very pure. But it's such a brilliant film. That's my sixth best film of the year, Mank. You're with Julian on the brown note, and we've got my top five best and worst films of the year. In a terrible year for music films and tracks. Uh, I look at it much, I don't know which is worst. I think the albums might be the stronger uh, and tracks and film are vying for a terrible. Uh, at number five, one of the biggest letdowns of the year, I did a review a few months ago, which was two versions of Daphne de Maurier's most famous novel, Rebecca, head to head. I gave the Alfred Hitchcock film a 10 out of 10 and i get which I've, I've seen it over the years but this time i was really taken by the themes that are so modern in it given that it's a melodrama themes of gaslighting psychological abuse toxic relationships it was really really heady so ben wheatley's been one of my favorite directors of recent years films like the kill list and sightseers are, are really blew me away and even when it wasn't so great, like with High Rise, he was still 
a really interesting director, a field in England, one of the most art house propositions in modern cinema. And Free Fire was okay, but not that great. Well, he was an inspired or terrible choice for the movie Rebecca, a, a remake of that film disturbingly close to the screenplay of the original and massively to its own detriment. It turns out he was a terrible choice. I said at the time I think this film's successful because Netflix didn't set out to make a film to challenge uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca and they didn't set out to investigate the themes of the book. What they did was set out to make a film that would be appreciated by the Fifty Shades of Grey and the um, Downton Abbey country house romance set. And on that level, that's all they did. They made a pretty film with pretty people, but it was a terrible film. Uh, Front and centre was the casting of Arnie Hammer in the Laurence Olivier role. He brought nothing to the table. He looked mildly annoyed. Um, He was so unsuitable for the role of Maxim de Winter, a tortured soul with a black heart who's had these awful things happen to him and done awful things. He just didn't. He just didn't rate. Lily James was very anemic in the Joan Fontaine role. None of the rest of the cast were particularly good, apart from Kristen Scott Morris as Thomas as Mrs. Danvers. She was superb. Uh, it was very, very trite. It was. Um, I watched the two films back to back, and the weight of the dialogue in the Hitchcock version really impactful, and the weight of the dialogue in the Ben Wheatley version just didn't mean anything. It was just thrown away all the time. He relied on gorgeous cinematography, but it was very glossy to the point of being reductive. It had a a detective yarn thrown at the end that didn't need to happen and actually plot-wise pretty much didn't happen, but they just got to show Lily James driving fast in a car to get somewhere in a moment that didn't end up mattering anyway. Um, It was really bad, and it was such a shame to see Ben Wheatley doing something so tritely obvious, with no trademark of him apart from a few seconds in the middle of the film. It was an awful film, and um, it it was also uh, so close to the screenplay of the original that it was really easy to pull it to shreds on every failing it had. But for someone that's such an exciting, challenging director, not to even engage in a lot of the themes that are so modern about toxic relationships and psychological abuse and gaslighting, why would you not? Um, it's a very vapid film and an awful one. Uh, at number five, the most underrated film of the year, The Lodge. Definitely up there with the likes of Hereditary and The Witch for me. Um, it's a film directed by Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala. And Riley Keough is magnificent. She was brilliant in The Devil all the time as well. Um, She's a one to watch for me. And I thought this film was an amazing, amazing take on sending someone. She's she's the new wife after we watch Alicia Silverstone blow her brains out in the opening scene, uh, which was pretty confronting. She's the new wife. And she goes to a lodge in the middle of nowhere in the snow with her husband's two children from her previous wife, both teenagers, they both hate her guts. And obviously it's going to be, you know, haunted devil stuff. There's pictures of nuns on the wall. Nothing of the sort. What we get is something far more original and far more upsetting and weird. And it's absolutely bonkers of plot progression. Uh, It focuses on... Um, what you expect to come and the fact that we're dealing with... um, I won't spoil any of it because I I really think this is the most underrated film of the year. Um, I I was gobsmacked by the the fact that it didn't take the path I expected and and the path it took was so awful. It's really dark. And like the end of Hereditary, it was so bleak by the end. I loved it. Um, I thought it was a really, really good film. So you should watch The Lodge if you like anything like Hereditary. And why hasn't it got more attention? Why has rubbish like Midsummer's got so much more attention than this film? It was excellent. It got good reviews. It just got completely ignored. And Riley Keough is definitely, she's totally different in The Devil all the time. She's one to watch for me. I think she's Aussie. Um, But what a great film and what an interesting progression that completely undercuts everything you expect to see in this kind of film. So The Lodge was my fifth best film of the year. I'm doing all right time-wise. I might even have to get some more music together. You're with Julian. 
On the brown note, counting down my best and worst films of 2020, and number four, my fourth worst film of the year, is the film that was designed to save cinema. The film that was going to end 2020's cinematic drought and people being barred from going to the cinema with a big tent picture by one of the biggest tent directors on earth with a long gestating project. All his projects are major filmic events and it was a complete letdown. My fourth worst film of the year is Tenet by Christopher Nolan who has established himself as one of the great big picture directors of this century and unfortunately a law of diminishing returns that's been very slow but probably the high point of his um, career may have been Inception or the in between Inception and The Dark Knight and then there was a slight tapering off with The Dark Knight Rises which is still really good and Interstellar which against Tenet looks like an absolute masterpiece it was still you know a seven and a half out of ten film it just wasn't an absolute masterpiece itself um, but it had so much that Tenet didn't. Tenet was an incredibly dull enterprise. It would have made a much better sci-fi novella because it didn't have enough plot for a two-hour film and mainly because the whole backwards conceit of the film would have worked a lot better in your head because on screen it just didn't work. It too often just looked like it was very expensive to make, but it looked like people playing video backwards. And the whole idea of it, of these bullets coming out and landing into the gun, it never really made any cogent sense as to why that would be a thing. It never seemed to mean anything at all. Like, it was even watching the scientists show them how it will work, you're like, it doesn't quite translate to a visual experience. The things that I thought were definites in this film, no matter how tepid it was, uh, would guarantee to get some mind-bending visuals, and it, it had none. Interstellar was full of mind-blowing visuals. This had none. It was very rote visually. There was no really arresting sequences that you didn't see in the trailers. I mean, the guy going up the wall was okay, but seen similar. Uh, the plane crashing into the airport was shown on the trailer as interestingly as it happens in the film. That's not even a particularly interesting thing. The climactic car chase sequence and heist had been done better in every Mission Impossible and Fast and Furious film and with much more imagination. Nothing in the film worked. It was all really dreary, one note emotionally. Um, Dan David Washington and uh, Robert Pattinson were fairly dull in the roles, uh, which were very dull anyway. It was overloaded with a lot of um, Christopher Nolan's worst traits, namely massive reliance on exposition to explain what was going on to the extent of almost laughing um elizabeth debecky i think is a great actress with a, a lot of future um but she stood out a bit for me in this but only a tiny bit everything is so flat nothing really meant anything and it wasn't that people like christopher nolan fans said you didn't understand it man i understood it perfectly it was just really difficult to understand because it was badly written and presented and it wasn't that much to understand about it. It was just very confusingly put together. Um, it was amazingly rote, really. Um, so I thought this would be a mind-bending experience, but it was the most disappointing experience. I went and watched a 70 mil cut in the cinema. I thought the worst that can happen is that I'll get some amazing visuals, and I got none. There wasn't a, a sequence in the film that was fit to wipe the boots with the trailer from Inception, and Interstellar was a far better film. At least Interstellar had some really strong themes, a lot of emotion, and, uh, and a raft of characters that you engage with emotionally. All three of those elements are completely missing from Tenet. It is the worst Christopher Nolan film, and the most disappointing film of the year. Uh, at number four in my best films of the year, Vivarium, another film like The Lodge, which was incredibly underappreciated. Uh, I think a debut by Lorcan Finnegan. Um, this film was um, him and Jesse Eisenberg, who's been very up and down in films. He's okay here, but it's not great. Uh, and Imogen Poots opposite him. They're a couple looking for a new home. They can't really afford anything, so they go to this suburban dreamscape where all the houses are manicured and look the same and the guy showing them the house disappears and then they can't leave the suburb 
every time they drive out they end up in opposite the same house they've just been in this goes on for years they're trapped in this endless suburban environment there are no other people food is left outside their door and they never see anyone they can't escape it doesn't matter what direction they go in the suburb goes on forever and eventually a baby is left outside that they have to raise and things get darker and darker and we see the impact the baby has on their relationship and they start to pull apart this is such uh, an analogous film there's so many analogies in it um <clears throat> it is the darkest look at suburbia and uh, a perfect dream life with your child and wife in suburbia that you could possibly have i've not felt more distressed or depressed by the end of a film this year it's so acidically dark um we watched jesse eisenberg spend his virtually his whole life digging a hole in the garden trying to get to the bottom of this hole the metaphors run very fast in this film with how people spend their lives how having children changes relationships the um, impact of this awful alien child on their relationship and the way that he behaves the fact that children are replacing you and you're going to die and they're not even going to really care um, it's got so much darkness in this film it stops being uh, a, a sci-fi film where you're looking to find out what is going on and instead becomes this incredibly toxic nasty allegory for the perfect dream life in suburbia it isn't for everyone it's so dark some people might want it to just be a sci-fi film and find out the mystery of what's going on but it's bleak and for me i've not rated imogen poots a very very pretty actress in anything she's done before this film she is absolutely amazing in this film totally changed my opinion of her she's brilliant in a very challenging role jesse eisenberg is okay he's a bit more in the background he's good actually he's better than okay but it's poots film she is amazing as she travels through life in this one spot she can never leave um it made me feel so down at the end it really did but a brilliant piece of filmmaking for varium at number four and what are we up to here well, with julian on the brown oak counting down my top films of the year and my worst films of the year next week it'll be my tracks of the year but that won't make it onto anything other than the full length radio show uh which will be on the radio or on mixcloud because there's too much editing and music and it won't be any point uh at number three in my worst films of the year a film that has made it there because it's one of the most acclaimed films of the year though i notice in the end of year lists it's not showing up anywhere near as much as they were making out uh to be like one of the best films of all time when it was released it's atrocious spike lee's the five bloods now it was a case of the right director in the right time with the right subject it, i think black lives matter was kicking off and they suddenly thought black director black film something something because the the film we made before that black klansman i didn't think it was a masterpiece i think i gave it seven and a half out of ten it was really good um this wasn't this was terrible um four guys go to vietnam in their later years to get some gold bullion that was dropped in vietnam when uh and steal it back as reparations for the fact that african americans were overrepresented in being sent to vietnam amazing to think that thirty thousand of your fellow countrymen were conscripted based on their birthday each month during the height of the vietnam war and sent to fight in vietnam can you imagine that like how how that was ever a thing can you imagine like 10 5 000 australians get called up to the army every week and sent to fight in vietnam amazing stuff uh, and the fact that they were overrepresented and treated like dirt and poor people were as well there isn't anything to this movie and there isn't anything that is racially interesting about this movie once they've said black people had it hard in vietnam so we're stealing some gold to make it all better that's the whole movie um everything about this was naff the first hour was amiable but then it has another hour and a half where it's interminable nothing really happens it looks shoddy the cinematography often looked like tv it's a lot of the jungle scenery looked like it was shot in a car park the morality of it was highly questionable they the gold bullion the 20 million dollars they're stealing was meant for the hmong people the chinese oppressed group of people they're stealing from one group of oppressed people to pay for themselves it never made any sense morally to me um 
it was very rote and I thought that the one Delroy Lindo was a really good actor everyone else was very average um, including some of the Europeans who appear in the film um, are B grade or C grade not even a wor- worth putting in the film performances so bad it does the white saviour thing in this most black film there are three white people in it that are representative of a European agency in Vietnam to clear minds they are shown as the heroes going to Viet. None of the Vietnamese are. The Vietnamese are treated as stereotypically as they were in films 30 years ago. None of them are given the credence of any sort of um, nuance or sophistication. It's really bad. And the fact that this is held up as a film that is, you know, about racial matters when it treats the Hmong people and the Vietnamese people in general, um, like any other racist film would have done 30 years ago they're all stereotyped they aren't shown as good people and the western white people are shown as coming in and doing good in their country and saving them the african americans are stealing gold that was meant for the Hmong people anyway um it was a very bad screenplay it looked like it was shot in a car park half the time um and the acting wasn't good and it ranged from not good to absolutely terrible um the first hour was reasonable but the second part of the film which was an hour and a half long could have been done in 20 minutes um there was nothing to this film which spoke to me about race or the modern era it had absolutely nothing on any level it was interminably boring and the fact that people went nuts over it really offended me because there was not this film didn't say anything about race really um and the characters behaviors in it was hardly representative of people that are doing it for african-americans it was just nothing to the story um it was very long very boring badly made badly written badly performed and how it got like 93 percent on rotten tomatoes it is terrible the five bloods was my third worst film of the year i trashed it when it came out my third best was one of the earliest high points in cinema this year uh directed by lee wannell who's done some good stuff and starring uh elizabeth moss who's done plenty of good stuff and is very of the moment from the handmaid's tale and other such things and this is a very very modernist take on the invisible man story much more interesting than i thought it was going to be it instead focuses on those modern themes that rebecca the new one didn't which is toxic abuse in relationships domestic violence stalking and it used the trope of the invisible man to show you know this ever-present force in this woman's life that won't let her leave and who she can't fight against like stalkers and toxic people who follow you from one place to another uh it was all very timely very feminist i really liked it elizabeth moss was fantastic she'll probably get an oscar nomination and the film deserves a best picture nomination as well it's really well handled it's got some very scary jumps and it's got some very like the restaurant scene was probably the most amazingly what the hell scene in the hot in the, in a movie i've seen this year uh it's really really good the progression of the story is excellent and the um, dramatic effect that this toxic guy has on her psyche is all brilliant it's all like metaphorical in a way he could have been a abusive husband without being the invisible man um it's surprising and often thrilling um and i thought it was an all-around brilliant film really well made from top to bottom with great performances great screenplay um really good use of a well-worn trope of the invisible man to frame modern concerns about relationships and and toxic masculinity etc so my third best film of the year was the invisible man and so my second worst film of the year the the last two both got a zero out of ten uh we summoned the darkness is my second worst film of the year i gave this an absolute pasting i enjoyed it i only got i only watched the whole film because i really wanted to give it a massive slating and i did which is very enjoyable one of my most fun reviews of the year directed by mark mayers it is um, a film about three girls who go to a rock concert there's a background of um, a serial killer on the loose and religion and they go to this concert they pick up three boys they take them back to the house and then the twist which is the fact that it's the girls who are the serial killers 
not the guys who you've been led to believe are going to kill them. It's the other way around. And this is the premise. This is seriously the premise of this film. The three girls are from an evangelical Christian church that has gone off the rails and whose leader, whose charismatic leader, played appallingly by Johnny Knoxville, is so bad. He looks so embarrassed. Has sent his congregation out to perform ritualistic satanic murders on people in order to scare people so they will come to his church. That's really the premise of this film, which is one of the most ludicrous attempts to look at organised religion I've ever heard of, one of the least credible stories in movie history. Um, the fact that you would encourage people, you would actually get your congregation to ritualistically murder people to make other people scared to come to your church is just bizarre how anyone thought that would float. They genuinely think it's a commentary on religion. It isn't. As I said and I reviewed it, it would have been a much better film had they made them Satanists. And, and, and they have like a girl in it who um, flips and joins with the guys. And I just thought, so she's been conned into becoming a murderer, performing satanic murderers, and, a, and then she's flipped to not being one. I mean, how malleable are these people? The three female leads in it are beyond atrocious. Alexandra Daddario, uh, Kian Johnson and Maddie Hassan. Their acting continually consists of screaming every line of dialogue. The whole thing is basically them chasing the guys around the house. And that is the full extent of the ambition of this screenplay. Um, I guess it could have been in the woods or it could be in a big house. Nothing interesting happens along the way. The acting is a beyond, I said at the time, beyond what you would, e and I even remember saying it, it's beyond what you would accept from your own child in a school play. It's so bad. Um, it's terrible direction, it's very boring, it adds nothing to the horror trope, but the thing that really got me is at the end it showed the um, the titles went up and the music for T'Pau's um, Heart and Soul, brilliant track, uh, that came up, and I suddenly realised it was supposed to be a parody or a satire like the Scream films, and I didn't even realise, and it's sort of like it's it's trying to be one of those films without defining what kind of film it's parodying, whether it's the 80s horrors like Nightmare on Elm Street or the 90s pastiche horrors of the likes of Scream. This is like Scream 12. They actually carried it on from direct-to-video to only able to watch it on your iPhone standard. Um, everything about it is awful. Johnny Knoxville shows up at the end. He's abysmal. Um, it is absolutely terrible, and I gave it a 0 out of 10. I slagged off Netflix for making action movies all year and then they turned up with some really artistic films towards the end of the year in august i reviewed i'm thinking of ending things my second best film of the year i thought it was absolutely brilliant charlie kaufman a brilliant writer and director absolutely at the top of his game a hugely challenging film of shifting sands and unreliable narrators and unreliable reality uh, which featured Jesse Pinkman was fantastic. Jesse Plemons, sorry, Jesse Pinkman, Breaking Bad. Jesse Plemons was in Breaking Bad. And Jesse Buckley is the female lead. is fantastic. Tony Collette is really good and David Thwellis. And it's a really sad film. Uh, it shows sort of like um, this couple going to visit their aging parents and they're having this, I'm thinking of ending things sort of back and forth. And we see inside the woman's head what she's thinking and, I'll go along and meet his parents, but once we get back, our relationship is over. They've only known each other for six weeks. It's really deep and profound. It goes into men and women in their relationships and what they secretly think and the dark thoughts you have about your partner. And then it becomes much more. It, it evolves into this incredible fever dream um, about the halfway stage where uh, where unreality kicks in and all everything, every sort of grounding we've been standing on it would have made a great film just being a drama about this couple falling apart uh, on the visit to... I'm sure it's happened with many couples where you do something. You know, you, I will, we'll go on holiday or we'll go and visit my parents and that is a trigger for the relationship falling apart. But it becomes so much more than that. Uh, it's a challenging film because it's quite uncomfortable in its second half as reality goes further and further away. It starts with things like her jumper changing from scene to scene and it just keeps building in this unreality fever dream. Um, I found it a profound film, a moving film, a really strong film about human relationships and about 
romantic aspirations and then so much more profound on top of that as well uh, it was quite dark by the end um, as was the novel I believe I haven't, I haven't read it um, but I thought I'm thinking of ending things it's the novels by Ian Reid uh, was was something that really rewarded me on multiple levels there was no A to B here there was A to infinity and you could get out of it so many things and and the writing was so daring the performances were really daring as they had to continually slightly adjust who they were uh, I've not seen uh, Jesse Plemons as good in anything before um, and I thought the film itself was really moving and sad and heartbreaking and profound and challenging and weird and original and a brilliant piece of writing by Charlie Cow for my second favorite film of the year uh, you're with Julian on the brown note and we've reached number one status so my worst film of the year was actually one of the most recently reviewed, and I did give it a 0 out of 10. It's the apex of Ron Howard's terrible Oscar bait. It's Hillbilly Elegy, an absolutely dire, laughable, cringeable, awful film uh, with not enough story, uh, with some really cringe-inducingly awful takes on the Appalachian Ozark themes that have become very popular in in movies i said it's a hallmark greeting card version of winter's bone um i thought glenn close will probably get nominated for an oscar amy adams is perfectly fine but everyone else in it is pretty naff to be honest and i found the um gabriel basso the lead character i found his performance not really interesting and i found his character singularly uninvolving i didn't like the whole story of the um, guy leaves his family behind to become a venture capitalist but scene on scene it was so cringe inducingly bad it just didn't have anything at all to elevate the subject matter. It was so unbelievably ham-fisted. It was awash with um, flashbacks continually throughout the film, perhaps because it didn't have enough story to go throughout the whole film. Um, I felt it, it was almost made as badly as some of those evangelical movies that they've done. Um, it was very flat. Um, I didn't think that the story was interesting enough to be a film. It was just, you know, he had a bit of a bad home life and went to school. Um, but it was really Ron Howard's disaster because he made it such a superficial world. It was so cringy and glossy and uh, it, it wanted to be edgy and dark and grimy and, and, and I didn't feel like I was ever in that world. I thought they did some bad things and you know drugs and alcohol were a problem and abuse and stuff but compared to virtually anything compared to a film that was in my worst uh, list the devil all the time which is also in that kind of world which was so rich in atmosphere this had none it was just so cringy that it was i think it mistook yelling for um, emotion as well um it was a trite film it was embarrassing at times i laughed at it quite a lot which i shouldn't have done and it thought it was worthy of Oscars, but it's got trash critically. Um, and I think people are saying, oh, this is elitists not liking this film. No, it isn't. It's a terrible film. It's not elite people not liking it. You would have to think the new version of Rebecca was superior to the Hitchcock version of Rebecca to actually like Hillbilly Elegy. It's the apex of Ron Howard's cloying, overly sentimental, mawkish, soppy version of emotion and it went for every big emotional note it could do in the most obvious way it could it was really embarrassing to watch at times and it's my number one worst film of the year hillbilly elegy you suck and my number one film of the year i presaged at the start of the show i haven't got parasite in this year because it came out at festivals throughout last year but one film that was only released very briefly at the very last week of 2019 but actually got an international release on the end of january is my number one film of the year by a fair margin it's uncut gems is my number one film of the year from the safradi brothers uh josh and benny safty safty not safradi safty brothers good times had elevated their very acclaimed indie films up into getting major wide international attention with that brilliant well nearly brilliant robert pattinson starring film any complaints I had about that being a bit superficial was wiped out by this. Uncut Gems is a masterpiece. Um, it is the most embarrassment the Oscars have had in recent years because it's so good in the key areas. The direction is dazzling and dynamic and cutting edge. 
So is the cinematography. It looks quite unlike anything else. They've got this really high-resolution focus going on in the film. Uh, the soundtrack is another thing that should have won an Oscar by Daniel Lopetain, 10 Tricks Point Never. Magnificent. He's worked with those the Safdie brothers before. And Adam Sandler, what can you say? One of the great misanthropic anti-heroes of the modern era. The best anti-hero performance in, in a project since uh, Brian Cranston as Walter White in Breaking Bad. It's a brilliant film. I thought Julia Fox, the gorgeous Julia Fox in her debut, was a star-making performance. Uh, the basketball player Kevin Garnett was magnificent. <laughs> Who knew why? Uh, and Eric Borgosian is in there as well. Uh, it's the, I hated watching it because it, I was suffering from anxiety at the time quite badly. It's the most stressful anxiety-inducing experience I've ever had with a film. I was so happy when it finished, and it took me hours to get over it. But it is dazzlingly brilliant on every level. The screenplay, the directing, the sound, the music, the editing, the performances. Adam Sandler is off the charts. He is a repugnant human being. <laughs> And it is so exciting, but it is so straight. Don't watch it if you, you suffer from anxiety because it nearly wiped me out. It was a really, really tough film. I was counting down the minutes till it finished. But a brilliant film. My favourite film of the year is Uncut Gems. Uh, I do think it's a film from this year, um, even though it might have been a little bit part. It shows the sack of, of last year's conversation. Most of what it did was after the 31st of January Netflix release. You couldn't see it in Australia before that. So that's my number one film in a pretty flat year, but that film would have arguably won any year. Uh, it would have certainly been in my top two or three in any year I've done this show. It's a magnificent piece of work, and the Safdie brothers have gone dramatically up from producing the really great indie film Good Times to one of the best films of the year on a par with Parasite for me. I would have said they would be, it would be a really tough fight for me to decide which film was better. I might go with Parasite, but if I'd been reviewing these last year, my top three films would have been Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Parasite, and Uncut Gems. In what order? I'm not 100% sure. Ask me on any day, I'll probably change my mind. That's it. We're done. Uh, that's my number one film of 2020, Uncut Gems.